0: One of the purposes of creating a center like Spirit Rock or the many various temples and spiritual centers throughout Asia, sometimes they're referred to as places of peace. That is that there are places for us to learn or train Or reawaken that possibility in the heart of being at peace in the world in the midst of all the complexity and change, the birth and death and gain and loss and pleasure and pain that are what our life is made of. And the very practice of meditation of mindfulness that we've been speaking about over these last few weeks, in particular, is the practice of learning to sit as a Buddha and to receive sorrows and joy, love and fear, expectations and judgments and plans and excitement with respect, as if we could bow to each of them, knowing that these are the energies of life, and yet somehow being bigger than those, resting in some greater spaciousness of our own heart or mind, a space without judgment, without without the conflict, with compassion. My teacher called meditation, stepping out of the battle. It's not that there isn't the battle. He didn't say there was no battle but it's somehow getting bigger than the battle. Saying, wow, it's a lot of battle today, isn't there? Ah, so nice to kind of have more space around it. So this evening I'd like to speak about some of the Buddhist teachings regarding conflict and battle. If you read modern analysis of the world, like Sigmund Freud who had a very dark vision of it. Um, he speaks about um, how men, of course it's men, have to try to do everything they can to suppress their violent and dark and you know, rapacious instincts. Notice that he puts it in the male gender for this particular thing. Um, but when we go to school, and read the history of Western civilization, so to speak. Um, a lot of it is the history of conflict and battles. You know, who fought whom, where, and who won. Whether it was Roman battles or the Saracens, or you know the Spanish Armada, or or the uh, Revolutionary War and the Civil War, and you know one war after another. A lot of our history is that. So that when somebody asks Mahatma Gandhi what he thought of Western Civilization, he replied, it would be a good idea. (laughs) But it's not just history. Aristotle said, only the dead have seen the end of war. Only the dead have seen the end of war. It's a very powerful and painful statement and all you have to do is turn on the news and watch this month Chechnya or one Kurdish faction with another or the places where the cameras aren't that still continue in Kabul in Afghanistan and in Angola in Africa and many, many other places, many of them in Europe. Who would have thought a few years ago it was going to be in Europe? Yes. So, a question for us, a really pressing question as human beings can we learn another way? Is it possible? One of the things that I've read as a psychologist into, in, about, that's interested me has been the history of childhood and read a number of books and journals. Um, that look at how children were seen and held in previous uh, eras, um, some of them do analysis, for example they 'll take all the extant writings from ancient Greece uh, or ancient China or ancient Rome, and pull out of them every reference to children and organize and see what do they say about children in those writings. Um, ancient India. and one of the things you learn in that kind of study, although there's beautiful aspects to childhood, there was also widespread slavery and the selling of children, infanticide, grave abuse of children, child labor, and not only that, it lasted until early in this century in many, many parts of the world, including in some extent in our country, certainly the child labor laws, are. Are within this century. And now, for the most part, children aren't sold and they're not made slaves in the most ostensible way, maybe still economically so. And at least in the U.S. there are child labor laws. And the world's way of holding the place of children has changed some, hasn't it? There's an article in my favorite radical journal, which is Mothering Magazine. This, it is, it's quite, it's really, it's the most radical journal. mix, Greenpeace and all those other things that I get, you know, and things just seem seem very tame, really, because it goes to the root of things. Um, but one of the articles in this past issue was about spanking from Evie LeShan, has written 30 children's books, and now is in her 70s. She said she wants it on her tombstone don't hit your children. And she writes about it from her experience. She said, like, I saw a little boy take a truck away from another child in the sandbox. The victim, who was a year um, uh, or so younger, um, st- oh no, the victim who was a year or two older, struck out at once to retrieve his toy from the younger boy and hit the perpetrator very hard. Mama climbed into the sandbox, Wrathfully, smacked her child and said, that'll teach you not to hit someone smaller than you. <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> we are creating a society of vengeance when we hit one another. And then she goes on. She said, in my 28 years of work in prisons, I have never met a person convicted of serious crime who wasn't beaten as a child. A group of acquaintances some years ago made a point of traveling around the world on a several year journey to visit the cultures that were known to have been peaceful cultures, to study or try to learn from those, and they visited the Bushmen in Africa and the Hopi culture and the Inuit Eskimo culture and several others. And some of the themes that they noticed in these societies that allowed them to be peaceful. First is that they had still a village or community life where you knew the other families and people around where you lived. And that that village life was in rhythm with nature. Secondly, that the spiritual teachings of those cultures were imminent, that is here and now. They weren't waiting for the sacred to come at the end of life in some form of heaven or hell or ascension or whatever it was supposed to be. If there was something divine, it was here and now. And the reverence then for life was their spiritual practice. And third, that they valued their own bodies and life. So there was an erotic life of music and dance and love and connection that the body was something that was valued. Is it possible for us in a greater way in the world to learn to live peacefully, for humans to learn a wise relationship to one another? Every retreat of the hundreds and hundreds that we've taught over the years since starting Vipassana retreats in America, and most every class is ongoing, begin with the taking of precepts, which are the Buddhist training rules or training practices. They're really the practices of the heart, in which we agree to train ourselves not to kill other creatures, small or large, not to steal even small things, because it creates a whole different world, doesn't it, when someone is stealing in the environment. Not to tell untruth or lie, and not to abuse sexuality or intoxicants. And these aren't done in order to make you a better, less sinful person or something like that. They're done for ease and joy and happiness of heart and openness of oneself and others. Can you imagine what the world would be like if even one half of one precept was kept? Not even all five. Suppose that we didn't kill people I and mean, we could kill other things. We didn't kill people. It would be an unrecognizable change on the earth. Or suppose that we told the truth. I and mean, That's almost harder to imagine <laughs> in society. So these are not small things they are radical acts to live in a community and speak the truth or to not steal or to not kill Now one of the great histories in Buddhist tradition is of the emperor king ashoka who lived more than 2000 years ago in the in the middle kingdom of india And he was like most emperors. You get your empire by uh, pillaging and raping and taking over. And he had a huge army and took over many, many, many small kingdoms. And one day he had an epiphany while walking across the battlefield after a particularly large battle and seeing young men, the sons of families that he knew, lying there. It was the day after the battle and already the bodies had started to rot. In the hot sun and seeing one body after another and dead animals, the war horses and the elephants and so forth. And somehow the grief of that scene touched him in a way that it would never done before. And he went into a retreat and then sought out a teacher. In this case, it was a Buddhist teacher. And he had a kind of conversion experience. And what's left that we know of King Ashoka includes some stone pillars that still stand in various places in India with the edicts, the teachings of King Ashoka that say, for example, on one pillar I'm paraphrasing, in previous times hundreds and thousands of creatures were killed every day for our cooking pots or for the pleasure of hunting or human beings because we fought with one another. This is not the way of the Dharma, and it is not the way of the kingdom of King Ashoka. From this point onward, we will not purposefully kill other creatures in this kingdom. From far and near, this is an edict to let all beings know that this is a kingdom which is a place of refuge and safety. Imagine that. And then he had other pillars that that stood up that were the edicts. Where he wrote, he said, "It has come to our attention that there are that there are followers of many. Our royal attention that there are followers of many faiths in this kingdom. We understand that the followers of many faiths all seek the same goodness of heart. They all seek the same purity and peace and well-being. And therefore, it is our royal edict that all faiths." shall be honored and respectful of one another, and this shall come to pass in this kingdom." Written on a rock. And so there was a kingdom for a long time that followed of honesty and beauty. Many people think that it's not possible to live in this way. Kierkegaard wrote, he said, many people believe the biblical commandments like love your neighbor as yourself are intentionally a little too severe, like putting the clock ahead a half an hour to make sure of not being late in the morning, that it's not really something we could do, but we sort of talk about it. But to live a life in the Dharma is to seek to find that wisdom that steps out of the battle, that wise relationship. In the monastic communities, there are particular forms for this. There is a recitation of the mocha, that is, the commitments or vows that monks take and nuns take every new moon and full moon, so every two weeks, where people will come together and recommit themselves to living a life of not harming one another. And sometimes before that, there's a time of confession. One of the things I've noticed on retreats where I do interviews with people individually, many, many thousands of these, is that those are often times of confession. People will be sitting and feel the things from their past and then come in and say, I can't even sit with myself unless I tell somebody this truth. Say, can I tell you what happened or what I've done? And my task is simply to listen sometimes to recommend amends that need to be made or to make sure that that person in the future will protect themselves and will protect others. This happens in the monastic community. We come together again and again and retake our commitment to not harming. Or we have a ceremony of forgiveness called pavarana. After we would lived together for a certain period of time, The teacher would come down from the high seat where he usually taught and everyone would sit together on the same level in the circle. And people would apologize if they had harmed one another in a public way or speak about things that were difficult and ask one another's forgiveness. The practice of reconciliation. It's necessary and it's necessary for us to learn not only that, inwardly, in ourself, all these conflicting voices, and we judge ourselves, and we like this, and we don't like that. And when we learn mindfulness, we stop and say, Ah, oh, judgment, conflict. This voice says one thing, this says another. We bow to them and find that place that can hold them all from the center. That same mercy and respect and kindness can be cultivated, practiced, brought alive in our community with one another. And then, as it said in the Navajo prayers, it is restored in beauty. Our relationship is restored in beauty. I watched my friend and teacher Ma Gosananda In the Cambodian refugee camps, go from one faction or one group to another, just offering forgiveness, loving kindness. Of what avail is an open eye if the heart is blind? The last instructions of the Buddha, as it's written in the stories anyway, begin with a dialogue about a kingdom. From the minister who asks about whether they might or might not be attacked by another kingdom and kind of the political problems. And the Buddha asks, do those who live in this kingdom meet in harmony and break up in harmony? Do they carry their business in, with respect for one another? Do they follow the way of the elders, the ways of practice that have been handed down for generations? They do, my lord, he said. Have you heard that they revere and salute those who practice the ways of virtue? They do, my Lord. Um, Do they care for those who are weaker in the society, for children or women or anyone who needs protection? They do, my Lord. Do they listen to one another respectfully? They do, my Lord. Do they care for the environment and the nature around them? They do, my Lord. Then these people can be expected to prosper and not decline." And then he took that as an opportunity to say, similarly, anyone who follows the path of practice, if you listen respectfully to one another, if you follow the path of the elders that remind you how to live wisely, if you care for that which needs protection in yourself and in the environment, so you will prosper and not decline. Now if only it were so simple, because in fact there's conflict over and over again, isn't there? How many people had conflict of some kind today? How about this week? How many didn't? A few. Thank you. Happy for you. (laughs) It's not to say that it won't be there, But how do we deal with it? conflict? You know, there's a story of Mullah Nasruddin. He was sitting in the tea shop when this kind of bombastic philosopher came in and was saying all these things and Nasruddin disagreed with him and they kind of got into an argument but Nasruddin and the philosopher both had to go and they said, we'll continue this later. Yes, let's meet back tomorrow and everyone was going to go and listen. But uh, Nasruddin didn't return and the philosopher, you know how philosophers are, like everyone else, they like conflict maybe, was upset and angry and went looking for Nasruddin, went calling at his house, but he wasn't there either. So he wrote on the gate, stupid oaf, big letters. A couple days later, they met in the tea shop. The philosopher said, you know, you didn't come back and I went to your house and I was looking all over for you. I, I, uh, I couldn't find you. And Nasruddin said, I knew you came by when I saw your name written on my gate. <laughs> We're not gonna do away with it. When I went for many years to men's retreats with um, Michael Mead and Robert Bly and James Hillman became part of that series of years of retreats, we used to have conflict hour, where instead of saying that it was a bad thing we'd say, All right, anybody getting any conflict in this room, stand up and put it out and let's hear about it and let's give it voice and let's learn from it. You know, and people would get up and say what was bothering them and who was bugging them, whatever, and we would practice with conflict rather than have it be underground. And then we actually ritualized it. Do you know what ritualized conflict is? Politics, for example. <laughs> it is. I mean, this election that's coming up is instead of a battle, you know, instead of the Republicans and the Democrats and the Libertarians, whoever, all getting their troops out to see who's going who's gonna to take power, it's ritualized conflict. Be grateful for it. I mean, it's messy, you know, and it's unpleasant and stuff like that, but it's a lot better than it could, you know, than it might have been. So we ritualized conflict. We had, for example, dance contests, different groups where men would get out and dance and and show what they felt, and then another group would have to come out and see if they could best those men. We even had insult contests, you know, and it was fun, draw a big circle. Men have been doing this for a long time, you know, in the dirt. You know, and from one team or the other, someone would go out and say, All right, you know, representing this side, they would be asked to give a more devastating and witty and clever insult to the man from the other team, you know, and there was a panel of judges. I loved it actually. I had a good time with all that. And did very well at it, I think. In a way, sitting in meditation is a, is a ritual to deal with conflict for many of us. You come after a day, or you sit down in the morning at home, and there are all these conflicting energies to make a form which can hold those energies and respect them, and yet step somehow out of the battle. Conflict arises often because of the different points of view. We hold in ourself, or between us, and there always will be. I don't paint things, wrote Matisse. I only paint the difference between things. But because there is that difference, there is conflict. I remember a true story of a a man who took a a Zen master to hear the Boston Symphony Orchestra play Beethoven's Ninth. Think, oh, it's sort of like the pinnacle of Western. Art and culture. Afterward, he said to the Zen master, Well, what did you think about that? The Zen master replied, Not enough silence. <laughs> I love Beethoven, but isn't it interesting? <laughs> then there's another point of view. And if you look, whatever point of view you have on anything, there's another point of view. Might even be yours tomorrow quite possible, you know? Now, a lot of conflict, if you begin to study it with your attention, comes out of fear. Fear of being hurt, fear of pain, fear of loss, fear of being embarrassed in some way or shown up. You understand? I mean, look how often that's the source of conflict. Fear has a thousand voices, a thousand reasons why, a thousand ways to bind us. But fear is all a lie. If you look, mostly fear is composed of thought and imagination. So we paint the tigers. And it threatens more often than anything our own identity of who we think we are. Yet, who we really are can never be threatened. Nothing real can be threatened, is one language for this. Give you an example. Somebody asked the Dalai Lama at the Conference on World Religion in Chicago um, if he was angry at the Chinese or hated the Chinese army for all that they had done to the Tibetan, destruction of the Tibetan temple and culture and pe- temples, culture and people, and knowing his answer, sort of a public answer, he says, no, I don't hate the Chinese. Of course not. And they said, well, why don't you hate the Chinese? It was a reporter or something, and he said, they've destroyed so many of our temples. They've killed so many people I know. They have destroyed so much of our culture. Why should I also let them destroy my peace of mind? You understand? This is what I meant about fear, that we can be afraid of all kinds of things or we can step out of the fear itself. How do we handle conflict? In the monastic community, it's interesting. Some of the teachings that are given are to bring back concord when there's conflict. And there are two kinds of coming together. When the Buddha spoke to Sariputra, he said, harsh words do not serve as a remedy and are pleasant to no one, so fueling the conflict doesn't help. Take those in conflict and give them quiet places to be with themselves, and then listen with patience to both parties. There are two ways of reestablishing concord, One is in the letter of the law, and the other is in the Spirit and the letter. The concord re-established in the letter of the law serves no one. The concord re-established in the Spirit and the letter alone is right and true for us. So if there is conflict in the monasteries, there is a series of practices that are done. First, people are given a cooling off period. And it happened that people were fighting in the time of the Buddha, these monks, about the rules and the way they should live. So badly the Buddha was called in to kind of mediate this conflict and they wouldn't listen to him. The monks who lived at the monastery called Kosambi, and one said, we're supposed to do this according to the rules, and the other said, no, you didn't keep the rules. And they continued to fight and were very angry. And the Buddha said, wait a second, I made the rules. Listen to me. Do you think they listened? They were people, right? People listen sometimes and other times they don't and they were were identified with their point of view. And finally the Buddha threw up his hands and he said, it's not any use and went off to the forest to live for a time, for some months before he returned. They needed a cooling-off period and after a cooling-off period, then the practices are first to sit face to face. That is to avoid, to bring all the parties who are in conflict together and to avoid what is called private communications. Do you know what that means? All those things that everybody says about who said and she said and why and so forth, all those things that fuel it. It's like pulling the fuel out of the fire. And then the second practice is called remembrance and listening. Once everyone is there together, people are given the turn just to sit and speak about their experience, how it was for them. This is really making counsel. And counsel is wonderful, it works in a family as well, you know when there's a conflict, to say, all right, let's sit down, or you could just sit down with your partner, with your lover or your spouse, periodically, and sit with one another, even if there's just little bits of conflict, or very little at all, and say to one another, I'm going to sit and listen to you for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Whatever you need to say, I'm just going to sit here and be present and listen. And then after you've spoken, I'll take a turn, and whatever I need to say, I'll say, and you can listen for 10 or 15 minutes. It's a fantastic thing simply to sit in the presence of another person and listen. It's really what we do in here, that kind of listening. Then the practice that's requested is one of non-stubbornness. And that is done in a very simple way. Each of the parties in the conflict is asked to speak about what was their responsibility, what was their part, how did they contribute to it. Oh, I didn't contribute at all myself, it's all my wife, you know. So they're asked to look from another side. And then there's a place for apologies, which are quite sweet when we receive them and sometimes very hard to do. Humility, it's said in one of the teachings, means being the first person to say, I'm sorry, or I love you. It's a very courageous thing to say, I love you, especially when there's conflict. And then, if there is still questions, there's a consensus of the elders who have all listened. And they say, this is what we seem to hear as being true or what must be done. And an acceptance of what the elders say is asked for next. Can you accept what you hear from the elders after all this? And finally, the part that I like the best which is called covering mud with straw. And that is there's all this raw stuff, the wounds that have been brought up. People don't even like their wounds to be touched if they're physically cut. Do you don't want somebody to touch your wounds, do you? And to to be touched in the wounds of the heart is also difficult. So there's all this stuff stirred up in the wounds. And to make some peace over it, the members of that circle who are most deeply loved and respected are asked to speak, and they speak about reconciliation, and they speak about forgiveness, and they speak about the the deepest understandings that they know of, to kind of bring an ease to the hearts of both of those who are there. They speak about the need to not put anyone out of your heart. To do this means learning the art of listening to one another without pressure or expectation. Really to listen, what does this person say? To hear in a new way. (laughs) There's a story, it was the birthday of the parish priest and the children had come with birthday gifts and so forth father took the gift from little Mary and said, oh, I see you brought me a book. It felt like that beside Mary's father had the bookstore in town. How did you know? Oh, father always knows. And you, Tommy, you brought me a sweater, said father picking up the parcel. He knew Tommy's father dealt in woolen goods. Oh, that's right. How did you know? Oh, father knows. And so it went till father lifted the um, this little uh, kind of bag that Bobby brought. Wrapping paper was a bit wet, or box. It was a little box, rather. Bobby's father had the liquor store. So father said, I see you brought me a bottle of scotch and some of it spilled. Wrong, said Bobby. It isn't scotch. Well, what's in the box? Rum, then? Wrong again. Father's fingers were wet from the bottom of the box. He put one into his mouth. Gave him no clue. Is it gin? No, said Bobby. I brought you a puppy. (laughs) I know it with my daughter, you know. There are moments when her eyes start to glaze over, then you can sort of see it in her eyes. She's heard this parental thing, or she sees me, you know, getting my my spiel ready that I've given to her a bunch of times before, and it's like she doesn't feel like I'm really there to hear where she is today. So can we actually let go of our ideas, of how it should be, of what we're afraid of, of what I want. There's a shift of identity from this small sense of self that's in the battle to that spaciousness. A woman came to a doctor one day with severe signs of stress and struggle, and he gave her a prescription for tranquilizers. She wasn't that excited about it, but he said, please take them, try them, see if it works. Check in with me after a few weeks, because you've been in such stress and conflict. So she came back a few weeks later and he said, How is it? Does it feel any different? She said, No, I don't feel any different, but I've observed that other people seem a lot more relaxed. <laughs> Something happens when we make a change in ourself that affects the whole environment sooner or later it really does. Don't you know that in yourself? I mean, feel that. When we become more spacious, when we become still in the face of conflict, not trying to deny it, not backing away, simply bringing the quality of stillness and presence, things begin to settle. To let go means simply sensing that there is a much bigger dance going on than what we're in conflict about, that our heart remembers some greater values. From the Dhammapada, the Buddha speaks, he says, Look how he abused me, beat me, threw me down and robbed me. Live with such thoughts and you live in hate. Abandon these thoughts and you will find love. You too will pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? Remember your own death. Remember what is important. This is really a kind of amazing dance that we're given, and it's very short, this human life. And it's true, we could fight and be afraid and get caught in all these things or we could step back for a moment, and most of those conflicts would soften and settle. I'll tell you a, a story. At the end of one of the men's retreats a couple of years ago that we did outside of Los Angeles in a rented kind of funky camp in the mountains for 115 men, um, a multicultural retreat with a, lo- a number of young men who were part of um, youth gangs in East Los Angeles and in Watts, um, men of color a lot of this, working to somehow confront the pain of racism in this culture and the violence that's happened to our children. We decided to end the retreat by going back to Watts in the middle of the ghetto it with a procession and we carried four trees from the mountains. We were going to plant a little grove of trees and put a bench there for the elders of the community, to tell their stories of what they had learned and over the years for the young men to listen to them. And the the area that we chose was the place where the first riots had started in Watts in 1965, and it was still there was still destruction around there. To fi- to make some center of peace in that. And When we got back we found that one of the gang members of a group of these young men who'd been still back there and not on the retreat had been shot in a drive-by shooting while we were away. So our celebration turned into a funeral and there were these young men drumming and dancing and doing an ancient grieving funeral chant and hundreds of people came from the community for this. It was going to be a celebration. But we realized that um, in order for it to really attest to the work that we had done, hearing one another's stories and pain and struggles, we needed to ask people to put down their weapons when they came into the grounds that we prepared to plant the tree. And I don't mean just their physical weapons. We made an arbor of some of the branches that we brought, and we got the two of the biggest guys in the retreat, this big, tall, black, beautiful black man, and this very big um, white guy, stood on either side of the gate and they said, "You're welcome to this place if you come in peace and if you carry with you any unresolved hatred or resentment and you wish to come in here." there is a way that you can enter. And by the gate there was a pile of stones that we had brought down. You may take one of these stones and place into this whatever keeps you from entering a place of peace, whatever you hold in your heart that still brings you pain and hatred, and bring it over there, we dug a hole in the ground, and bury that in the earth and then you may enter." and several of us sat kind of as priests chanting on the edge of this hole that was dug. We did a whole ceremony for it. And we thought a few people might do that. Everyone who walked through the gate took a stone and came over and really held it and meditated with it for a long time and put it carefully in the earth, this very simple ritual. And we realized that if we had went into L.A. and did it on Wilshire Boulevard that there would be a line of a thousand people. I'm serious. To come and put that into the earth. <coughs> what does it mean to put that into the earth, to let go and start over? With an open heart and clear eyes. This is from Helen Keller. She wrote, Security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children's of human as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. What are we afraid of? To forgive allows us to start over again. To step out of the battle is to say, yes, it's been painful, I've been afraid, it's so, and here I am again. Beyond my non-cooperation, says Gandhi, there is always the keenest desire to cooperate on the slightest pretext with even the worst of opponents. To me, a very imperfect mortal is ever in need of God's grace, ever in need of the Dharma, No one is beyond redemption. Gandhi spoke of this as the greatest act of courage. He said if he had to choose between nonviolence and, or rather, violence and cowardice, he would have chosen violence. He said, I would not do it as an act of cowardice. Let my first act every morning be this resolve. I shall fear fear no one on earth. I shall fear only God. I shall not bear ill will toward anyone, nor shall I allow injustice. I shall conquer untruth by truth, and in resisting untruth and bringing peace to this life, I will bear all sufferings and love all beings. His morning recitation. I don't know what's possible for us, but I do know that it's really a task that calls to every human being at this time on the earth, and maybe it always did. Can we find peace in ourselves? Can we make peace in our families? Can we make peace in our communities. It's not about winning over somebody else, but living together. Again, a story for you, told many times. The farmer whose corn always took first prize at the state fair had the habit of sharing his best seed corn with all the other farmers in the neighborhood. And when they asked, why do you do this? He said, really, it's a matter of self-interest. You see, the wind picks up the pollen and carries it from field to field. So if my neighbors grow inferior corn, the cross-pollination brings down the quality of my own. And that is why I'm concerned that my neighbors plant only the very best. What we do inside is a gift for one another. But then people say, "All right, that's fine, you know, for little conflicts, but what about bloodthirsty tyrants? You know what about Hitler? What about the really bad stuff? And again, my friend Mago Gosananda goes for a peace march <laughs> for a month or two every winter through the Khmer Rouge territory and all the places of battle in Cambodia step by step, first with a hundred and then five hundred and now some years later with a thousand or two thousand people, and they go to the most dangerous places on purpose. said, if we can't testify to peace, who else can we expect to do it? Like Martin Luther King said, we will match the horror with the strength of heart and our conviction. You know, there's a story of a Norwegian priest during the Second World War who was pulled in by the Gestapo when they took over that part of Norway and brought in to kind of be interrogated and perhaps tortured to find out who was in the underground in the community. But before the interrogation began, the Gestapo officer sitting in this room, you know, the bare light in the middle of the night and so forth, took out his Luger, his pistol. And he put it on the table said, we want to talk to you about some things. And as soon as he did, the pastor reached into his satchel and he took out his Bible and he put it on the table next to the gun. And the office said, why did you do that? And the pastor replied, you've taken out and placed your weapon on the table. I thought it was time for me to do the same. there is another way, and in our hearts we know that's true. The unarmed truth will have the final word," said Martin Luther King. And within us, someplace deep, we know that this is so. Someday, after we have mastered the wind, the waves, the tide, and gravity, we shall harness for God, for the divine, the energies of the heart," says Teilhard de Chardin. And then for the second time in the history of the world, we will have discovered fire. I give this talk not to explain to you techniques of conflict resolution. There are little of those in there. and Probably half the people in the room know them anyway. I really do it as a reminder periodically of what's possible, for us to look at ourselves and our life, and remember from this place of listening what we most care about and how we could live. Let's sit for a moment. as you sit quietly, first be aware of what are the greatest conflicts within yourself. Reflect, or sense, remember, and let yourself feel what it would be like, what it is like, to hold those conflicts with mercy and respect and a spacious heart. And Then let yourself bring to mind, reflect, remember the conflicts. Pick a conflict that's current for you in your life with others, an important conflict or a small one. And let yourself see it from your own Buddha nature, from a place of understanding, spacious wisdom, and fearlessness, mercy. Sense, if you can, how you might live your life to bring peace to yourself, to those you love, and to the earth around you.